Welcome to the 333rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with disability activist and scholar Ashley Shu, who's a professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 2nd, 2021, there are 4,544,610 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I'm gonna continue raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know about in addition to the death totals which are so overwhelming. I'd like to know how many hours of occupational and physical therapy treatment were lost because of the unwillingness or impossibility of school districts, employers, and insurers making these treatments, treatments possible in the pandemic. I've also been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Yesterday, I read the first half of this story, which appeared in Nursing Times on the 20th of April, 2020, the title, Tributes for Nurses and Midwives Who Have Died in the Pandemic. This was written by Rebecca Gilroy. Sophie Fagan, 78, was working at Homerton when she died there on the 19th of April after contracting coronavirus. Ms. Fagan never fully retired and could often be found meeting relatives and supporting staff when she was not, um, and meeting supporting staff when she was working. She qualified as a nurse in the Eastern Hospital Hackney in the UK in 1966, starting a career that would span 54 years. She has worked as a community nurse and was a career support specialist at the time of her death. Hospital Chief Executive Ms. Fletcher said Sophie wanted to make a difference and caring for the elderly was her passion. Her taste for the brightest and most colorful jumpers, her elegance and her ability to talk to everyone and anyone made her stand out in the hospital corridors. She was a passionate advocate for the patient and their relatives, exercising influence throughout the discharge process, including advocating for patients' ongoing care to the, to the extent that she often pushed at the boundaries in these discussions on behalf of the patient. RCN in London took to social media to express its condolences. It posted on Twitter, it's with a heavy heart that we say goodbye to two members of East London's nursing family due to COVID-19. Our deepest condolences are with the family and friends of Michael Alou, I read his obituary yesterday, and Sophie Fagan. Their commitment, passion, and dedication will never be forgotten. Stephen Pearson, 51, was a community mental health nurse at Cumbria, Northumberland, Tyne and Ware NHS Foundation Trust. Mr. Pearson, who had more than 30 years experience in mental health, died on the 13th of April, 2020, after showing symptoms of coronavirus. He was reported to have felt extremely tired 
but had no underlying health conditions and was awaiting the results of a coronavirus test when he died. Gary O'Hare, the executive director of nursing and chief operating officer at the trust, said it's with incredible sadness that we can confirm one of our community practitioners, Stephen Pearson, has passed away. We would like to extend our heartfelt and sincere sympathies to Stephen's family and friends. Our thoughts are with them at this difficult time. Mr. Pearson leaves behind his wife and two daughters. Barbara Sage, 68, died in intensive care on the 12th of April, 2020, after testing positive for COVID-19. She was a palliative care nurse with more than 40 years experience and was working with Marie Curie for the last 14 years, providing care to people dying in the community. Her daughter, Donna, said, mom was kind and caring and fun. She loved life, her family, her grandkids, and she loved her job. Mom started out as an ambulance driver in London when she was 18. It was that which made her want to become a nurse. Mom always said her job wasn't about the getting paid. It was about being there for people when they need it. It was about being caring and kind and giving people your time. Matthew Reed, chief executive of Marie Curie, said, Barbara's death is a devastating loss for the whole Marie Curie team. And I know everyone who worked with Barbara over the last 14 years can attest to her professionalism and commitment. I know she will be very greatly missed. Ms. Sage leaves behind her partner, Gerald, her children, Donna and Aaron, and five grandchildren. Donna Campbell, 54, was a nurse at the Valindra Cancer Center in Cardiff. She died on the 10th of April at University Hospital Wales after contracting coronavirus, 10th of April, 2020. Her colleagues described her as a treasured member of the team who could light up a room. Campbell was known for breaking into song and dance to entertain patients and staff. Steve Hamm, chief executive of Valindra University NHS Trust, said, we are devastated to have lost a member of the Valindra family. We'll always remember her as a dedicated, hardworking member of our nursing team who was proud to work for the National Health Service. First and foremost, we want to extend our deepest condolences to Donna's family and friends. Margaret Tapley, 84, was an auxiliary nurse, but most recently was working as a healthcare assistant at Whitney Community Hospital. Despite her age, Ms. Tapley insisted on continuing to work through the coronavirus crisis. Oxford Health NHS Foundation Trust confirmed that she died after contracting COVID-19 on the 19th of April, 2020, at Great Western Hospital. One of her grandchildren, Tom Wood, is a senior charge nurse at an A&E ward. He said, she was a huge reason as to why I'm a nurse today. She took huge pride in her work, but was so humble, she embodied the nursing spirit. Anyone who worked with her or knew her, that spirit that we all saw and felt lives on in us. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and welcome my guest, Ashley Shu. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Ashley Shu is an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. Her current work as part of a National Science Foundation career grant examines narratives disabled people share about technology that are often different from dominant ways of thinking about disability tech. She is co-editor of three edited volumes in Philosophy of Technology, current co-editor-in-chief of Techne, the Journal of the Society for Philosophy and Technology, and author of Animal Constructions and Technological Knowledge, which appeared in 2017. 
She works alongside other disabled people on issues of disability rights, inclusion, and activism through her local Center for Independent Living and through the campus group, the Disability Alliance and Caucus. Her writing on disabled positionality, tech, and access has been featured within the past 18 months in Nature, AAUP's Academe, and Inside Higher Ed. She's a proud signatory of the Accessible Campus Action Alliance's statement on Beyond High Risk, which we will talk about today, that advises universities in colleges to enact a new accessible normal as pandemic planning continues. Ashley Shu, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Yeah, um, I'm coming to you from the land of the Tutelo Monongan people um, as part of uh, uh, a land grant institution, which some might call a land grab institution. Um, on the, I live out, just outside of this college town that Virginia Tech resides in, in southwestern Virginia, about an hour from the West Virginia border, um, in the New River Valley. Uh, the New River is one of the oldest rivers in North America, oddly named. Um, and the situation is anxiety producing. Um, you know, I feel like there's been a huge rush to normalcy. Um, one that sort of erodes the experiences of disabled people um, in that normal was never hot stuff for us in the same sort of way it is for everyone who's been desiring it. Um, and also it's not normal for us yet. Uh, being in higher risk groups um, means a lot of things, but um, it means at this point a healthy skepticism about local officials um, and, and the decisions they're making and who they're thinking about when they're making those decisions. I have two kids that are in public schools. I am back to teaching in person this semester. It's um, a little stressful. Um, I'm glad to be vaccinated. And I think I saw on Twitter, you you got a vaccine recently too. Um, um, and I, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious um, how that is for you. Thank you for the update on, on where you are there in Virginia. And, and thanks for asking. Yeah, I was vaccinated on uh, Wednesday morning Korea time. And uh, I did a little documentation on Twitter um, in part because I just felt I needed to share it. Um, and in part because people remain hesitant for all kinds of reasons. And sometimes a community never know when a communication might begin to have somebody rethink their position on vaccination. And I hope even a percentage change will make a huge difference in public health. Um, but it was emotional for me. I don't know how it was for you. I was really, um, there was a lot happening. I mean, did, what was the experience like for you? Um, so I got my first shot back in, um, probably back in, in March, um, um, because I'm in high risk groups um, for several different reasons. Um, um, so I'm not necessarily on the CDC high risk group, but um, I've had cancer three times and had lung surgery twice because the recurrences have been in my lungs. Um, you know, I also have Crohn's disease and take um, immunosuppressants um, so that I can eat food and digest it. Um, so so um, I, I was able to get one earlier than a lot of people, especially in my age group. Um, and I actually got my third vaccination uh, last week. 
with one of my colleagues who's also immunosuppressed. And we said we were doing shots that afternoon and we saw each other in person for the first time in a long time to go to the pharmacy together as our social activity uh, where we did shots last week together. Doing shots, doing the third shot. Yeah, that's yes. amazing. I mean, um, we felt, we felt a probably more celebratory than we had if we had taken um, alcoholic shots. <laughs> yeah, I, I, did you, since you have this vantage point and, and thank you for sharing it, of having had two early on in, in, a, in the American perspective and global perspective, certainly, but now the third one, was the setting different? Was the, um, the vibe, the atmosphere of getting the shots somehow different? I talked to a lot of people in the U U.S. Uh, in March and April about getting a vaccine. And they described, of course, a lot of really makeshift vaccination centers, um, but then also as kind of a jubilation, a high-fiving atmosphere, people not knowing how to act because they'd been locked up for so long. What's the yeah. third one like? <laughs> um, the third one, um, I, because the vaccine supply is so good, I didn't have to make appointments. We just walked in. Um, you know, I'd called ahead because because we're um, younger immunocompromised people. Sometimes there's some resistance um, 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 in thinking about things, things. But I had talked to um, the pharmacy earlier in the day and they were like, oh, yeah, you can come in whenever or call us 15 minutes ahead. So we make sure to take it out of the fridge for you. Um, it was it was. Um, and it was just a normal day at the drugstore. Um, and we were the only two people getting vaccinated while we were there. Um, it, it was a very different than sort of a, the stressful, um, you know, for my kid, I have one kid who's 12 who's been vaccinated. Um, you know, we were going to a local civic center and standing in line. Um, and my vaccination like had a very strict appointment time and you could only make it online between particular times. And I drove an hour after I got my time that I didn't have a lot of control over um, to, go, to go inside the grocery store for the first time in, in very many months. Um, so this was a lot, um, uh, a lot uh, chiller uh, for lack of a better word mm -hmm. um, and the sort of frenzy wasn't there. I mean, I'm still very much waiting um, on uh, my, my younger child um, to, to get vaccinated. I don't feel like we can actually do a lot of things out, outside of the home in the same sort of way, um, uh, you know, fun activities and things like that until we're all vaccinated. I wonder, you know, you, you, you made a statement a minute ago, which I agree with, this rush to normalcy, which is felt acutely among people who have um, vulnerabilities. But I, you know, I guess I don't want the CVS to like pop a cork and throw balloons every time people come in to get a vaccine. But on this, at the same time, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to, how to phrase this, but I worry that it's sort of like being treated as it's, as if it's endemic in some places while in other places that ICUs are in parking lots, I guess that spectrum of, of reality in the U S is, is just the way what this pandemic has created, but I find it jarring. Yeah, no. And I think about, um, so um, I'm a disabled person who works in community with lots of other disabled people. So I know lots of other <clears throat> disabled people around the country for various reasons. And I had a friend who um, was in the hospital for almost a year, um, you know, for other reasons, not for COVID, um, but, but witnessing, um, you know, the nurses on the floor where she was working, um, having to set up 
uh, hospital beds in the parking garage adjacent um, um, to the medical facility that she was in. Um, you know, the sort of, um, you know, the longer waits, especially with long COVID for different types of physical therapy um, that people um, um, need now, respiratory therapy, um, these sorts of things, um, you know, where the disability world has been rocked in a number of ways, but we were also uniquely prepared um, um, to, to witness these sorts of things. I mean, I think most disabled people have experienced uh, periods of disruption in their lives, such that the period of disruption of COVID, um, you know, has disrupted things, but maybe we always expected things to be disrupted more than most people have. Mm. Um, you know, when I think about um, last year, the closest thing I have to it, you know, when I got really bad chemotherapy um, for about 11 months, um, you know, and I couldn't go places. I was immunocompromised. Uh, you know, it was um, the pandemic and being home um, was a more lovely version of that um, because, um, you know, I could interact with my kids and enjoy um, my life a little bit um, um, in ways um, that being locked in for chemo um, made a lot harder. Um, so there's sort of some weird, I think, for people who spend a lot of time with downtime. Um, um, I, I think this weir this year has been, uh, over a year now, has been a little deja vu at times. Um, and then also, uh, you know, everyone called it unprecedented, right? That's why, that's why it's so, um, you know, abnormal. I mean, we can't, we, you know, it's unprecedented times, but I mean, disability history, the production of disabled people through pandemics, you know, post-polio syndrome, um, you know, things happen that in the wake of um, uh, the 1918 flu, um, the, the, this isn't, this isn't the shakeup um, in the same sort of way um, that I think a lot of people who haven't been exposed to disability history or disability studies um, assume it is. I, I was going to ask you about this later, but I, since you mentioned this sort of concept of like downtime and people experiencing, um, you know, a wide array of people experiencing what for many people with disabilities is is normal life, is their life. Um, and this phrase that I've heard used, crip time, yeah. which somehow comes into play there. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, um, there's um, a lovely term in disability studies called crip time. And crip time is sort of a more forgiving notion of time and movement. Um, it's been popularized by Robert McBrewer and um, Allison Kafer and Ellen Samuels. Um, and sometimes we talk about it in really, you know, forgiving and lovely ways, right? Um, that crip time for us is the normal movement of time, um, but it's abnormal from the perspective of linear time things stretch and move and you spend a lot of time being an impatient patient, uh, for instance, um, um, you know, waiting around things, but then, you know, spending time perhaps working on your body or recognizing that your body is out of time, right? If you are young and disabled, people say, oh, you're too young to be disabled. Um, um, you know, being uh, misidentified in terms of time, having, you know, a stamina that may differ for, from other people. Um, you know, even when we talk about like the time it takes to do things, um, you know, even for people with like dyslexia, like it takes longer to read something. Um, our time has been shaped differently as disabled people. Um, you know, the starts and stops to life have looked a lot different for a lot of us. And that's 
for all different types of disabilities. So it's this lovely notion of this shared idea that time time doesn't run, the clock isn't. Um, and, and the way um, Allison Kafer talks about this, I'm gonna butcher it, I'm sure, but um, crip time is about bending the clock to meet our bodies, not bending our bodies to meet the clock. So it allows for this space for you know, forgiveness that you might not be on time very often or that it takes you longer to do things and that this is the experience of, of CRIP, of disability. The, thank you for that explanation. And it, it's one that I guess must make a lot more sense to people having lived through the pandemic um, because either they did have some sort of a health crisis in the pandemic and so they had to slow down mm -hmm. or because the, going through the lockdown or distance, social, whatever the requirement was, if they were following those requirements, meant that they had to change the flow of time that they were used to. I guess there's a part of it, I, I want to get your sense of this, particularly early in the pandemic, there was this kind of American reaction to that, which is, oh, you have all this free time now, so you must fill it. So that, that you couldn't, and I wonder how that sort of works with the crip time concept, because it was I felt like often it was less about accepting the reality of this situation that we're all in and mm -hmm. and more about like, oh, don't waste time. You've got to fill it with activities like work or baking bread or you need to start a new hobby. All this. So it didn't somehow, it wasn't a, I felt like it wasn't an acceptance in some ways of what you're describing as crypt time. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be okay um, to fill your time in ways that help you pass it, right? So if baking, sourdough bread um, and that was the one that got sort of stereotyped is, is yeah, how right. it, it helps you distance yourself from the experience you're going through sometimes that is coping and that's fine too um, but but you know I think uh, crypt time is this forgiving notion that's just it allows you to think about just existing as being enough and not trying to keep up right a lot of American ethos is about keeping up in particular ways, um, keeping up with an imagined uh, um, other in, in, in some cases, um, you know, but that sort of um, pacing, uh, you know, not being, not having appointments, not going to, like people who were used to that as their normal um, were really shaken up um, when they were told they couldn't go anywhere for a little while. Right. Um, and, and, you know, what that meant for their lives. I think about like all the sort of work people created for themselves in that space now um and other people you know oh i guess i'm forced to do that hobby i was really interested in and never followed through on um because you spend your time on so many other things so i you know if baking bread's it and that's how you cope then bread is good go for it um you know i, I be you know being a fan of crypt time means um you know sometimes the waiting is waiting I think about, um, you know, sitting in all the waiting rooms I have, um, you know, I can't, it's harder to take up a hobby if you're in the cancer center lobby, um, you know, but I think about people who take up knitting in that. I think about like the books people read as they wait. I think about um, Sudoku and Tetris and the sorts of um, puzzles that keep our minds active in ways, but also um, don't contribute to productivity, but are lovely anyway. I said, you said something a minute ago, which, um, also, I, I hadn't really thought of it this way. You were talking about your, your friend who had the experience of being in the hospital for a year So it, it, while COVID was playing out. Um, it seems then that people with chronic illness and disability have a unique vantage point on what the health system experienced throughout this last 
18 months. I hadn't really thought of it that that way. There's a kind of closeness to it, a familiarity with it that most of us will not want to talk about or think about. We want to stay away from the health system as much as we can. And it's not to say people with disabilities want to be in that system, but that's the reality of their of their life. Have you seen that in terms of writing or output, the the sort of witness aspect that you described is a really powerful one. Most of us have been on the outside of what's going on in those hospitals because we want to be. I, I wish my friend would actually write about this um, because yeah. some of the things that she has said has have rocked me in particular ways as someone who has avoided hospitalization throughout this time. Um, I, you know, and I think I'm, I'm, you know, not specific to disability here, but I'm part of a lot of different cancer communities uh, where people seek advice and help from each other newly diagnosed people, particularly, sort of the landscape of care in that vicinity when you can't, you're not allowed to have someone with you while you're getting treatments now, um, you know, um, where the rules around hospitals have, have meant that there are no visitors and where you might have, I mean, so when you're getting chemo, when you're actually getting it, you actually feel better than after you get chemo and you can go home usually, right? They are putting the toxins in you, um, right? Um, 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 so the, the part where you're hooked up to a machine is often the more pleasant part of giving chemotherapy. And people who are missing out on like the weird social time that would usually happen in that space, um, you know, or not so social, depending on people's preferences, you get tired the more treatments you take. Yeah. But, but the sort of pacing and I, you know, I've seen, I have to visit the cancer center every two months and I go to the room where everyone's hooked up to their, their, um, to their bags of fluid. And, um, um, it's, it feels surreal because it, it, it wasn't like it was a cheerful place before, but, you know, people would bring, you know, friends food and they, you know, there'd be at least a little bit of chit chat, but now there are like you're not allowed to have someone with you. Yeah. You can't. You can't bring your spouse or your friend or um, kids were never allowed back there. But indeed, um, um, you know, you don't have that 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 element of um, the sort of close care network that you would would usually experience in something like that. So, yeah, I mean, the vantage point for people with disabilities is is sort of of wide. Um, so some people who are are um, homebound anyway, or, or have to be at home all the time prior to the pandemic, um, getting medical care and assistance has been much harder, mm -hmm. right? Trusting, you know, personal sure. care attendants um, or people from drugstores to deliver, um, to get you COVID shots, you know, um, because so much is based on being able to drive up to testing facilities and drive up to get your shot. Um, right. It's really for people who cannot leave their homes. Um, it's been a very, very hard time too. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking about disability in the time of the COVID pandemic with my guest, Ashley Shu. Um, we got going, uh, and I forgot to ask you a question, which I like to ask guests um, uh, early on, and that's actually if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a memory of this time or something that really sticks with you that is unique to this COVID period. <laughs> 
Oh, I think about, um, you know, so I got to read this question ahead of time, right? You give it to more than one person. So, um, and it got me to thinking about, um, you know, the moments things were shutting down in the United States. So for Virginia Tech, where I work, uh, we had spring break and after spring break, they didn't, students weren't supposed to come back to campus. They were allowed to come get their things and have, have the rest of the semester online. And that, and I was so relieved because that was absolutely the right call as someone who knows not enough, but enough about um, history of medicine and pandemics. And I was uh, very relieved that that was happening. Um, but also um, I had been planning an event for years that was supposed to take place at the end of March, 2020. And I had to, with the help of um, my colleague Lee Vinsel and our graduate student, Kwon Hung Lo, um, who was the GA on this particular project, um, because it was something that invited in multiple disabled people, yeah. it was, we, we canceled it before the university canceled anything else. Um, so we, we could see it coming in just slightly earlier. Um, you know, I was in touch with um, some of our speakers um, and some of them had already planned to zoom in um, because they, because it's harder to travel for some um, disabled people than others. Um, um, so we had already knew there, there would be a Zoom component, but it was all Zoomed. It was all Zoomed six months later. Um, I, you know, and I, I love the event, but um, it, it was, you know, it was a, an immense relief to be unplanning the event I had been working on for, for, for two years, oddly enough, um, just because I would hate to be the cause of, of of someone's um, long-term disability or death. Um, and, you know, in, in the disability community, we were already talking about um, the long-term disability that would result from the pandemic. We were talking about it, you know, in March of 2020, um, that, that was already part of the disability conversation around COVID. So, I mean, that's another aspect, um, maybe kind of adjacent to crypt time is that you're, vigilance in canceling things. So you were ahead of the university in this. Oh yeah, we were a whole week ahead. And, um, but you know, we, we because we, we were, we would have been asking disabled people who are more immunocompromised than the general population. When we talk about pre-existing conditions, those are disabilities. That's just a weird way of talking about disability actually. Um, but pre-existing right, conditions, right. Um, that was already part of the conversation then too. Uh, yeah, it would have been wrong to ask people to come. So let's talk a little bit about your your work um, pre-COVID. And actually, I would like to ask you first about your um, your 2017 book, Animal Constructions and Technological Knowledge. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about your work in disability tech. Yeah, I mean, it seems like I've gone in a weird trajectory here. Um, my book, um, Animal Constructions and Technological Knowledge, is about the tools that animals make and use and whether they ought to be considered technology um, in light of how we've defined technology for human beings. Um, so I'm really looking at the narratives we have about technology through both projects. Uh, one is just looking at the narratives we have about technology that um, are about human superiority often, if we're talking about the comparisons made between animal tool use and human technologies um, in ways that are often you know, anthropocentric, uh, right? We measure um, so much of what human beings do expecting it to be superior. And, you know, we kind of overlook the evidence that 
you know, when, when animals make really good tools or make um, constructions that rival and exceed um, sort of the body to building ratio that, um, that we see even in skyscrapers when we talk about like termite mounds and, 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 and anthills, um, these things can, you know, the body of an ant compared to some of those things, um, they are building much larger relative structures. Um, so I'm really looking at that through philosophy of technology and, and how to make sense of that. And then, so you've got that, but then you've also got the disability studies work. And I'm sure you probably, most scholars, sometimes on the outside, people are like, how is this related to this? Most people, there's all kinds of crosswalks in projects that seem unrelated. I'm sure that must be for you. Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, the work I do now is a footnote in the book on, 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 on this topic. It's not a very long footnote. Um, but but I um, between starting the draft, and this comes out of my dissertation research, um, and finishing the book, which took let's not talk about how long that took. Um, I became disabled. Um, so I was paying attention to things in slightly different ways. I was teaching some disability studies themes before I became disabled. I actually put on um, sort of a speaker series with disabled speakers the year before I um, got my cancer diagnosis. Um, so, so the hook that holds them together is talking about narratives of technological progress and what they mean. Um, and sort of how I'm looking at it in light of disability is so many of our narratives about technological progress get fused to really weird narratives about how we should treat disabled bodies. So disabled people become test pilots. Um, disabled people become like who we try things on first in some ways that once you think about them a little bit, um, don't make as much sense. Um, but often this is in the absence of disabled people leading these tech initiatives. Not every disabled person is looking for tech solutions and always being um, the object of someone wanting to design around your body when you have not asked for such a thing is really objectifying and terrible in its own way. I call this techno-ableism. So a lot of our um, technology that people talk about as empowering disabled people, we're going to make this technology to empower disabled people, um, suggests that if you don't have the technology, you can't, you can't be a good disabled person performing your disability correctly for everybody, um, right? That empowerment comes at the cost of making disability seem like a terrible fate. Historically speaking, then, um, people, let's talk about engineers, maybe, um, who are motivated to develop technology um, to contend with disability. Can we characterize them? That, that means they're not often not disabled themselves, but they see it as a problem in the world they want to address, or maybe it's hard to uh, I don't want to flatten the historical nuances here, but I am curious about, you know, because I mean, the standard story we think about is the the classic Alexander Graham Bell story, right? Who deals with his mother's deafness by inventing the telephone. And that's the that's a one sentence, right? And so I feel like that kind of stands in for um, this process that you're interrogating at a much deeper level. No, it's funny. Um, when my child was covering Alexander Graham Bell in school a couple of years ago, um, they went into the class after I had talked with them about Alexander Graham Bell and declared that Alexander Graham Bell was one of the greatest villains in all human history. Oh, no. <laughs> I, which I, that, was, that never came from my mouth. But I did talk about his relationship to eugenics um, yeah. and, and um, you know, how he pushed um, narratives about um, 
you know, not letting deaf people marry other deaf people because you don't want to make more deaf people because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, because of worries about deafness. Um, so I've, I've never said he's not the worst villain in all human history, but but the narrative is definitely a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, and when he's held up as a, you know, wonderful inventor, um, um, it, it always makes me pause a little bit to think about how we think about wonderful inventors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can think his invention's wonderful, but then I think about the history around some of it and it's hard to, um, it's hard to grapple with. Of course, eugenics was a progressive cause of the time. Lots of people believed in it, um, and advocated for it. Um, it, it, you know, it's hard not to talk about technology and disability without talking about eugenics. I call this the sharper end of technoableism, right? Mm. So we can talk about disability technologies like fidget spinners and wheelchairs and, you know, these sorts of things. But if it's not a technology that helps you with something, then it's a technology that eliminates you in some way. Um, right. So those are those are all types of, of, of disability technologies. Um, once once they get lauded in particular ways, too. Um, but it's always like we're always going to you know, address our, our disability problems through technology where, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of disabled people, the stigmas associated in socializing and in the built environment and, and all these sorts of things, um, you know, go unaddressed because we think we'll get the right gadget and. Um, you can't just have technological solutions to socio-technical problems. Well, it fits into a, a, a broader history of of technology generally, where it's the it's a particularly American and European phenomenon. I think too, though, that the techno fix is highly individual. So an individual will get a thing that addresses their incapacity, um, mm-hmm. their inability to be um, productive, mm-hmm. um, and. And then the broader stuff, the structural stuff, like welfare support or education or accommodation, then we don't have to worry about that stuff because this person catches up to, to the you know the world that the rest of us live in. I hadn't quite thought about that connection with the technoableism, but in the historical record that you're working with, it must be all over the place. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, this sort of, and the narrative repeats itself with all different sorts of disability and all different sorts of technology. That's what's so. Um, you know, once, once you have the, the term, you can start diagnosing it in, in everything you look at, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's terrible, but it's also really interesting as a scholar um, to think about these things. And then to like think about what disabled people actually say about technology, right? So that's the, the project that I'm working on with the NSF, um, uh, where, uh, you know, we're reading memoirs and poetry and blogs. And um, I have some great graduate students and undergraduate students where we're categorizing things and sorting through, you know, what, what are these narratives that disabled people are telling that we do not see in the media landscape? One of those, I mean, is so classically, um, so classically STS. Um, so Hannah Hurtigan, my, my PhD student, um, you know, talks about technological ambiguity. We talk about it for all sorts of people, right? That technologies you know, the, the classic technologies are neither good nor bad, nor are they neutral, and they can change over time depending on, on how, um, how your life's going in different ways. Like to think about disability technologies like that, you know, in the popular media sphere is almost unheard of, right? Everything's supposed to be life-changing if you're disabled, but to think about it as sometimes good and sometimes bad, and sometimes it works for a while and you discard it, or sometimes you really liked something and they stopped like 
updating their operating systems and no, you can no longer get that technology that gave you the, the thing you liked. Um, like the, the, you know, the conversation around technology is much more um, complicated and nuanced and, and it's not, it's not any of the stories we're getting in the media landscape. Let's turn to uh, uh, an article that you published in Nature. It's a great piece titled uh, "Let COVID Nineteen Expand Awareness of Disability Tech." And in that, you you start to talk about some of these these projects. I want to ask you about that. You wrote um, in this piece, one of my projects examines accounts of disabled people's lived experiences with technologies and how they differ from those of the scientists and engineers behind the tech. Um, you go on to say, I plan my work intending to recruit disabled students among my researchers. Most of the studies can be done remotely, even from bed, and on a funky asynchronous timetable as needed. So here you're talking about um, a project about disability tech that then has to, it has to adapt to the weirdness of COVID. But you had already engineered it in such a way that it was ready for disaster, which I found amazing. No, and I feel like if we allowed more disabled people into planning spaces of all sorts, um, you know, I, I, I think disabled people are always forced to plan alternate routes because we often have to take alternate routes. Um, so, so building that into our work um, and building the time we need um, and making things suitably flexible and working in different modes is just part of part of what it means to be in disabled in community. So I did, you know, I, I actually wrote this grant um, in the wake of my, my first lung surgery, right? I wasn't sure I should apply for a grant that would be five years when I was afraid I wouldn't be alive in five years. Um, so some of the planning was just with the assumption that I would have more cancer in the future and, and building in ways and systems um, that the work could not necessarily carry on, but that I wouldn't leave my graduate students in a lurch, um, that, that they could still have things to work on and that we could divide the labor in ways that don't require people to be on all the time. I don't expect. So I have some undergraduate research assistants. I have um, um, a couple of graduate student assistants on the research right now, um, Hannah Hurtigan and Damian Williams. And the assumption is, you know, they also have exams and pa major papers do. I, I don't expect they'll spend the same amount of time on it each week. Um, right. So to build it in when you have the energy and the time that you can you can put forward um, the things you need to as part of this project, but then other times, um, you know, you're not as as steadfast in the work. Um, you know, and, and and I recognized that for a project like this, I really wanted disabled students to be able to work on it. Um, and while I didn't have the the same set of disabled students I have now necessarily um, um, at that time, um, I, I was thinking about how to, how to make it how to make it. And you know, I talk about this pandemic proof. Like I built it. Um, so that we could do it this way. And it means that we haven't really had, like, besides the large public event, I and mean, it's hard, you know, to think mm -hmm. about public events and COVID and moving that. And part of that was just being absolutely stunned at the time that <laughs> things were all, all changing so quickly. And there was so there were so many question marks around COVID. Um, you know, I, I actually like that it became an online event better than I do, um, that, that I think I would have enjoyed it as a, as a, um, as an in-person event, um, it did change the nature of it, but it meant we got we got a lot of interesting, you know, participants who wouldn't have been able to make it otherwise, you know, um, and could cater to a much larger disability community um, in that way. I've, I've heard that across the uh, across the spectrum of people involved in planning events. Well, 
uh, I didn't really think of it as online. Then we went online and I got so many people, particularly from parts of the world who never would have been able to travel. I, I wonder though, if there isn't some snap back, I worry about this because that's a really powerful insight of inclusion in higher ed. Mm-hmm. Do you think it'll slip through our, I shouldn't ask historians to predict the future, but I'm worried that that's like a little moment in which we thought another world was possible, but we go back to the idea of getting everybody together in the hotel ballroom or in the campus meeting center, which is disappointing. I mean, I think a lot of disabled academics have enjoyed access that they didn't have before, Um, but not everyone does still. So I think about all the sorts of um, issues with sign language interpreters, um, um, where if you don't have good enough video feed, then you can't right. pay attention. Like, like there, there have been slips through. And then also because things happen in so many different time zones, um, you know, not being, uh, able to participate is still part of it. I think we, there was a moment where we were all enjoying these online events and then it was like, oh God, another online event. Um, 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 you know, I, I, I think what for me, when I think about, um, all of these offerings, it's really shown that it was always possible. Like this has been the frustrating part for, for, for a wide variety of disabled people who wanted access before, right? To, when we're talking about professional conferences, who would have liked to go and network, who would have liked um, you know, to be able to travel, but maybe um, it wasn't feasible. Um, you know, I think about a lot of um, you know, contingent academics who don't have um, travel, travel money to, to sure you know, to scrape together going to a conference, um, you know, there's been a desire on the part of disabled people to have telework, at least some, at least some disabled people, um, people who have been driven out of the workforce for lack of telework, who in this past year have just been like screaming into the void because if this had happened, you know, if this had been allowed two years ago, they could have, um, you know, kept, kept, in the circles that they they wanted to be in or kept doing the work that they want to do. Um, so I think there's a lot of bitterness and frustration among disabled people that this was always possible, but we chose not to use it. And now everyone sees it's possible and the push for normalcy is making them take it away. And right. that's, I don't want them to take it away. I mean, that's what I wrote, wrote for, for nature, um, you know, that, that like we've shown we can do it. And in fact, you know, for some disabled people, this was the modality um, they were in before. I mean, I think about even in the like history of disability um, in North America, I mean, Ed Roberts is known as the, the father of disability rights um, and was one of the leaders in, in um, independent living and vocational rehab. He was the first, and I'm using this scare quotes, of severely disabled students uh, mm-hmm. to graduate. Um, and he did from, um, Oh gosh, um, and, and, <laughs> my brain hit a speed bump. Um, um, he, he graduated um, out of the University of California at Berkeley. Um, they mm-hmm. let him in by accident, um, but he actually dialed in, he could move his toes um, and he would dial into his high school classroom and got the grades he needed to, but wow. he was listening to school on the phone after dialing in with his toes, which was part of his body that he could move. And this is, you know, in the night, you know, this is the 1970s. He's graduating yeah. from Berkeley. Like the history of disability shows that we, we can work it in other ways. Um, but you have to listen to us and let us do those ways. Um, um, and I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about everything being rescinded in the push to make things normal again, because normal is really bad for some people, um, left them out entirely. Um, 
And, and for other people working in these new ways is, is preferable, especially when we recognize that, uh, you know, people have immunocompromised family members and, right. and things along those lines where even if we have the right disability policies for accommodations, we don't really have that yet. Um, even if we had those, that doesn't really work in a public health crisis. That only works in an individualized health crisis. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, talking to Ashley Shu today about disability and COVID. And I want to ask you, it's a good follow from what you were just talking about, the, the action that can be taken to try to avoid um, the, this moment, the lessons of this moment slipping away um, through the Accessible Campus Action Alliance. Can you talk a little bit about that organization? And, and there's a statement that was produced um, 2020 beyond high risk. Um, and it's pretty remarkable. And I'll put a link up to it for those who haven't seen it yet. But um, how did this group come together? Where is it right now in terms of its of its actions? And this is a particularly acute moment, I guess the whole time has been, but every time a new semester is coming or just starting, we're once again seeing how the decision-making process works on campus or doesn't work. It's another moment for intervention and um, Honestly, so much of it happens in a way that's not transparent. I just feel like it, it's, it's a space for activism and you're in it. No, and I, I, I really um, appreciate the academics in North America who put this together. So this is primarily um, people working at universities in uh, the U.S. and Canada who put together this statement um, in the fall, before the fall of, of 2020. Um, I think they put it out in June of 2020. Um, some people could spend time over the summer lobbying their universities with it. I know my own organization, um, Disability Alliance and Caucus, used it in what we were trying to communicate to the pre president and provost of our university about disability policy. Um, but that wasn't very effective, I'll be honest. Um, but this, this, this group, the, um, the Accessible Campus Action Alliance, is a group of anonymous scholars. Um, so most of them are not um, tenured. Some of them are not tenured track. Some of them are not professors. Um, so being anonymous and putting out this statement um, but was important to do. Um, and it's helped so many of us coordinate our actions for what we want to see happen at colleges and universities. And these statements have really appreciated that um, the issue is not about individualized healthcare, right? That's not how that's not how public health, that's not how pandemics work. Um, and to recognize, um, to recognize that we're not all vulnerable in the same ways and to the same degree. Um, they have us step back from talking about high-risk individuals um, because that makes us ignore the larger, and here's how they put it, the larger issue of vulnerability is not exceptional to disabled people or those who fall into epidemiological categories. Um, and they say that all students, faculty, and staff are vulnerable to varying degrees in these campus reopenings. Um, and this can have a significant impact on public health. They gave all of these best practices and they've updated it now that we have vaccination and whatnot, but the best practices include, you know, prioritizing health of the campus community, 
um, consulting the affected faculty, staff, and other stakeholders, um, not requiring disclosure of medical, financial, or familiar in information. So this is one of the things, if you hope to be accommodated through our current disability law, you have to disclose a lot of health information to make that happen. It doesn't operate on the basis of a family member's vulnerability. That is not something you can get accommodations for. So moving away from the sort of accommodations model that we're used to. Also, accessing medical care is not, not easy or great. And for some people, it takes you know a decade to get your diagnosis of an autoimmune condition, and you would still, still be vulnerable throughout that entire time. It talks about digital and remote technology and instruction um, as something um, that should be allowed and made readily available um, during a pandemic. And it's since, since updated to talk about that as well. I mean, I've been working with Disability Alliance and Caucus, especially over the past few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited about this update, but our local campus group has been, um, you know, my campus is in, has made better policy than a lot of places because we have a mandatory vaccination uh, situation for students um, and mandatory masks in classrooms on professors and students. Mm -hmm. um, however, we still have people who are not allowed to exercise remote options because so much, because of the push to normal, the push to in-person is part of that. And for people who have immunocompromised family members, being in person, especially with the rise of different variants, um, um, is just not, not an option. Um, so we've been particularly talking to a lot of graduate students and contingent faculty members and staff members um, who might not be able to get the accommodations they need um, and accommodations might not be what they need. We need a structural change to how we handle this situation, uh, which is to say remote work should be um, allowed where it is feasible. And in so many of the cases, we know it's feasible because we did it last year. Yeah, we, ever, we just did it. The whole <laughs> so it's did. really insulting to be told it's not feasible. We, we call malarkey on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. I, I'll call it with you. But I, And I wonder though, you know, what does success look like? You, you, a few things you talked about, vaccine mandates and mask mandates. What are some of the other things that, because um, this is what I would be looking for, changes that happen in the context of this disaster that then become law that then actually address what were longstanding needs before. People talk about learning from disaster all the time. I'm always the sort of pessimist at the party who's like, we usually learn nothing. In fact, we go backwards in many cases, but I wanna hold on to the possibility of this moment that's particularly, I think, well articulated in what you were just talking about, the, the work of the statement, the Accessible Campus Action Network. What would success look like? Oh, you know, it's, I had an idea a year ago of what success would look like. Um, I don't know that I have a grip on it in the same sort of way now. I mean, all of this lobbying, the assembling of people's stories that my community has done over the past year and the disability community here, um, you know, we met every week la last year by Zoom. We're still meeting this year every other week. We have someone, um, a musicologist named uh, Dr. Um, Elizabeth McLean, who um, runs online gaming sessions. So we have like a social component. I don't participate in that so the students can have fun without me. That seems only fair to them. Um, um, you know, that, 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 that um, you know, we, we've worked to build and keep community and we've brought more people in as part of our community, all while at a distance. And we've done it pretty, pretty well and successfully. And we've hung together. We've done all of this lobbying and it hasn't made any difference. Um, you know, it makes a difference to us personally being together, 
Um, but the sort of policy changes, the things that we wanted to see, the things that we worked all summer last year on and through the fall um, to get the university to change their accommodations processes, to make it easier for people to get remote work particularly, um, you know, and to have and to have some of this, you know, flexibility and remoteness as a longstanding thing instead of something that would be yanked away as it has been over the past month. Um, that that hasn't happened. Um, you know, success um, for me is building community, but I also want to see those structural changes. And gotcha. what we've been told, the response from our provost and president last week in a letter that they sent to the disability community um, was that the normal accommodations processes are working when we had provided a whole bunch of testimony that they hadn't been working. And, they, and they're not designed for immunocompromised family members. Like, right. The ADA office doesn't do that, um, right? And then, and then the sort of um, like lack of response to that, like they talked about how, you know, you go to SSD, Services for Students with Disabilities, you go to the ADA office if you're a faculty member and how those are the offices we should still be consulting. Um, you know, we, we, we described in depth how hard it is to work with those offices sometimes, how much documentation right. um, it requires and not everyone can get documentation, access to healthcare, isn't um, possible. And then I think about like, particularly um, non-white people who aren't believed by their doctors who are still vulnerable in this pandemic. Um, and I think about sort of the social determinants of health that you know, cause some populations to be more vulnerable in general. There are some populations, of course, um, uh, the black community, indigenous communities that have lost a lot more people, um, you know, just percentage wise and, and you know, forcing this normalcy doesn't appreciate, doesn't recognize the sort of loss so many people have felt. Um, you know, and the loss hasn't been from, I miss, miss seeing people in person. Um, the loss has been like the loss forever of family members. Um, right. and, and so much of the rhetoric has been, oh, they had pre-existing conditions, so yeah. we, don't, we don't care, right? And, and that's been hard to witness. The, you published a piece, I want to come to this article you wrote in, in Inside Higher Ed in March of this year, because I, I wonder in this piece, it almost sort of lays out the possibility for another route to some solidarity, and that's between faculty and students. Um, and just to read the opening part of it, it's tremendous, and everybody should read this. Um, the title of the piece is Disability Disclosure in the Classroom. It appeared in Inside Higher Ed. March 26, 2021, you can find it easily online, but you wrote, I'm a chemo-brained, hard-of-hearing leg amputee with Crohn's disease and the never-ending buzz of tinnitus. I don't necessarily announce all these things on the very first day of class, but in my syllabus accessibility statement, I state disability rights are civil rights. Some of my heroes were and are disabled rights activists. I'm multiply disabled and use accommodations on the job, and I want students to tell me what they need to best participate in class two. So, I mean, people should read this at depth. There's a lot of different arguments you're developing here, at, but part of it is encouraging faculty to find the courage and the gumption to disclose their status to students, but also opening the possibility that students could and should be advocates, not, not just for faculty who may be disabled, but for themselves. And that's hard because a lot of 19 year olds maybe don't think of themselves as having anything to do with disability rights. It's not their world. Um, but so that's a bit of a challenge. And yet, of course, 
there's enormous implications for their future that they do make that solidarity. So tell, tell me a little bit, I, I hope I haven't mangled the broader ambition of the piece, but it was so moving to me. Oh, thank you. No, I am lucky to be disabled at the classroom. There are so many things about education that make it hard to scale uh, for people with disabilities, the sort of artificial barriers that are put in the way of, of people on their way through education, sometimes under the guise of rigor, but there's nothing about taking a time test in a particular amount of time that really makes you smarter than anyone else. Um, um, I think about all the sort of artificial um, and constructed barriers um, that students encounter. And I think having, having knowledge about disability history um, is really important. I also think it's really important uh, not to be like, like, I'm not thinking role modeling here, but I am thinking something along the lines of recognizing disability in each other and not judging it as bad, but a value add in the classroom. Um, you know, I, I make sure to tell them which features of the class are my accommodations. Um, essentially, like I get, I get, I get choice over what classrooms we're in. As someone with a mobility and a hearing disability, I need to be able to walk over to whoever's speaking so that I can hear them speak. Um, so a classroom I can get around in, and we have some classrooms that you can't even access without going up and downstairs. Um, you know, those sorts of things I, I point out to them because I, I feel like, especially with how we handle accommodations, students don't know, you know, aren't supposed to know that other people have accommodations. Um, they don't know that faculty or staff have them. It's something because we handle everything in an individualized, medicalized model, people feel incredibly embarrassed sometimes that they use accommodations and often they're met in ways that make them feel embarrassed. I think about, um, you know, so many stories I've heard from students in the Disability Alliance and Caucus where they went to give their, their paperwork to a professor and like the professor like seemed angry <laughs> that, that the student was using accommodations, um, was, you know, asking for, I mean, what they what they give you for how long you have to document yourself. It's really hard to document everything to get the accommodations you might need. And that means um, that that the pushback they receive is, is often so unnecessary. Um, you know, they, they if, if the disability office believes them, you're not supposed to ask them, um, you know, what their disability is and these sorts of things. But I know of so many instances where students are made to feel worse about being disabled students and, and I wanna have a space where I'm really excited when I have disabled students in my class. I mean, part of that is I teach about disability history and I'm, I'm excited about our people. And I, I think it's a real, a, real, a real gift to be able to share these sorts of things and share in it together and know our, our shared history and that we are a we because so much pushes us back into individualization, whether it's ADA office, um, um, the physical therapists, right? It's always one-on-one -on -one plans. It's never about um, right. sort of normalizing disability by understanding that, that it's a community and that we there are things we share. Um, and often we're encouraged not to see ourselves in one another. You spoke earlier about the various risk factors that people with disabilities faced in COVID. I want to talk about the other side of that, which is the disabilities that COVID is producing. And I mean, I read something the other day that indicated some studies are showing that maybe up to 50% of COVID survivors are gonna have long COVID symptoms. And of course, and we've talked about long COVID on 
COVID calls, and some of those are they're intermittent. Um, they're hard to document. They look like one they look like one thing, but then they're another thing, or they're chronic fatigue. I mean, they manifest in many, many different ways. So we're at the early stages of even saying what long COVID is. But I, I wonder, you know, maybe the way to ask you this is is what can the disability studies research or the kind of activism you're engaged with, how can that provide allyship for people who are trying to figure out what long COVID means? Because, I mean, we're talking about potentially tens of millions of people here who are going to be facing lifetime or longer disability because of COVID, which is not a virus you just get over for many people. Yeah, I mean, those long and lingering effects and sort of the systemic changes that people experience. I mean, I, I said earlier that you know, we've, the disability community has been talking about inviting more members in, right, and anticipating this need, um, this need for, um, um, you know, community, um, helping people orient themselves to a whole new world, a whole new medical system that they're encountering. Um, I mean, even just the, just the paperwork alone, um, um, you know, requires um, a sort of disability friendship um, and, and working together. So I, I think about long COVID a lot and I think recognizing there was already a community even pre-COVID. So I think about all the people you've mentioned, um, 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 chronic fatigue syndrome, people who have had these sorts of symptoms, you know, pre-COVID um, um, have, have a lot of expertise, um, have a lot of guidance to give have a lot of frustrations to vent um, and, and having this new population of people with these similar symptoms. I mean, there, there's, um, there's something that could really radically shift. So I think about how people with uh, post-polio syndrome are some of our disability rights leaders, right? I think about um, how coming as you see yourself as politically disabled it's really important to shifting conversations around not just healthcare, but existence in communities. Um, you know, and it wasn't just that post-polio led to the disability rights movement. It's a lot more complicated than that. Right. Uh, right. But so many of, of the disability rights heroes that I think about are people um, who had post-polio syndrome or who worked with people um, um, with post-polio and, and, and worked, worked, um, to change conversations about how we're gonna think about disability. And I mean, for me, there's a kernel of hope in long COVID is that um, we will have people who become politically disabled and, and change our conversations, change the stories we have about disability and not just, you know, there are so many disabilities for which our stories, we don't have any, right? I think about people with chronic fatigue. Can you think of any fictional or non-fictional representation of chronic fatigue syndrome in, in anything. Like, I mean, I'm an amputee, so I see lots of amputees in the media. Some of them aren't really amputees. That's a little annoying. But, but you know, I think yeah. about those representations um, that we don't see. And, and you know, I think there's um, some really interesting things that could come out of that. That's, for me, really hopeful. I don't really want more people to get long COVID. Um, uh, you know, what that means for you individually um, can be devastating. But once you get past the devastation and recognize that that's going to be the state of your life, um, you can't, you know, you, the, maybe there's a time for mourning. Some people do um, mourn the loss of different types of ability. Um, 
But there's also, you know, great hope and strength and community and future planning and thinking about how to how to reshape infrastructure and understanding to better value disabled people. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I think about different disability rights str struggles. Um, and I think about all that's happening um, in California in really interesting and wonderful ways. I think about the SINS Invalid Artist Group um, that's Black, Brown, Queer, Indigenous, um, disabled artists. Um, so mm -hmm. sort of different types of marginalization um, yeah. artists who are working together on different shows about making disability desirable, right? To think about um, disability as beautiful, um, to think about the things we create together. Um, you know, I think about how that goes hand in hand with thinking about all the sort of natural disasters that go and hand in hand with that in California, right? When they're thinking about sure. uh, wildfires and earthquakes and um, some natural, but a lot of human caused devastation um, and the sort of response they've had um, in that to talking about how to love like barnacles and how to talk about um, access intimacy and, and negotiating things with one another. And, you know, they point out that, and, and rightly so, um, some of the activists in those circles point out that how, how our disability laws have, have had great effects for white disabled people. Um, and it hasn't, you know, who can hire lawyers? It's already the disabled people who are better off. Right. Right. And, um, and that has meant a two-tiered system um, where the people who get to be loudest Maybe people like me who are, you know, tenured professors at a university in an okay position, um, you know, get to um, send in demands, but everyone else has to arrange mutual aid, right? Um, what that looks like in terms of disability fellowship and supporting one another um, ends up looking a lot different when structures of power don't privilege the other parts of you. We're... We're up on time. I've been greedy with your time, actually, um, and I thought I might be today, given uh, all the many issues to discuss. The Paralympics are on right now. Do you watch? Uh, kind of. <laughs> so sometimes I teach about the Paralympics a little mm -hmm. bit, um, but I also, because I'm in some groups that involve my specific type of amputation, I know at least three Paralympians through these groups, and wow. I follow the, I follow them. I don't really yeah, sure. follow the Paralympics, but I follow um, uh, high jumper Sam Grew, and I follow the sitting volleyball team, uh, which has um, two people who have rotation plasties like I have. Um, because because the type of amputation I have like constitutes less than one percent of the amputee population, mm -hmm. it's fun to follow my amputation through the Paralympics. But that's about sure. it. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been watching it. I watch with my kids, and uh, we're big fans of goalball. Which, if people ah. don't know, that sports one of the most amazing sports in the world. It's visually impaired athletes who they put on a complete blinder and they throw a ball across about a volleyball sized court, and the ball has a bell in it. And so they have to do everything they do working in groups of three with visual impairment. And uh, it's, it's the best sport that's out there as far as I'm concerned. So oh, I got to put a plug in for amputee soccer. Oh, so my God. I haven't watched that. Do you want to watch people run on crutches? Um, yes. They're so fast. Like for yeah. me, I've been on, I was on double crutches for like 
for a very long time because my leg took a long time to heal. It's also really interesting. So amputee soccer has a lot of higher level amputees. When we think about like the most functional amputees, we usually think the more you have, the better off you are, right? So you have more, more, more meaty bits to hang your prosthetic on and, you know, below the knee amputees are sort of your sportiest. Amputee soccer like turns that right on its head. The less extra meat you have to carry around, the faster you the can faster go on yeah. Um So, like, sort of our narratives, even about technology here, where you know, you, you know, you want to have the best body to have the uh, the uh, prosthesis that you know makes you like normal. In fact. If you give that up, um, right, and, and you're on these like, you know, very sporty, um, very durable crutches, which are more expensive than my crutches ever were, um, um, but also a lot less expensive than my leg is. Um, um, you know, it just really, um, it's just really, really cool. I like watching amputee soccer too. Oh, okay, well, I'm gonna check that out and thank you for that. Um, um, uh, spoiler alert, the goalies yeah. are arm amputees. Really? But all the play, but all the other people are leg amputees. Amazing. Okay. People, people who haven't who aren't aware or never heard of Paralympics, you can just go to Paralympics.org. And in fact, they're live streaming. Um, uh, and you can and they've uh, are, got a great archive and you can watch a lot of uh, Paralympics. And there are a lot of um, this is a whole separate COVID calls that we should have at some point because sometimes there's ambiguity too, because uh, the Paralympians have sometimes been characterized as in the way you described earlier as sort of like pioneers or they're there there's a test they're like they're not like other people who suffer disabilities and and so there's gray area there but i mean just in terms of watching the sport it's just amazing sport oh it is and i wish more people saw it as sport instead of charity like there are so yeah, many weird totally. conversations um you know i wish i could fly like that on double crutches <laughs> like yeah. um, um and like the way everyone looks at sports and it's like well how did you know, Serena Williams hit the ball yeah. that quickly and fast. That? Yes, yeah, exactly. um, but you you can get that same thrill um, on a lot of Paralympic sports too. Just a reminder: you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at six p.m. Eastern time. And just thanking my guest Ashley Shu for this Thank great you. wine raging conversation, for the research you're doing, the activism you're doing, and for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks, Ashley. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID calls.